continue our time of worship this morning as we study his word. So if you would open your Bible to the Old Testament book of Jonah, chapter 3 is where we're going to be. We're walking through the book of Jonah. It's a short book. It's just 48 verses, so it's not taking us super long to get through it, but it's a rich uh, source of understanding of who God is. So I hope we're going to see some of that this morning as we study his word. If you'd follow along with me, I'm going to start reading Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of the walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh by order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. In a way, this story reminds me of how uh, sometimes action films will start with this, with the end, this kind of climactic moment where it's chaos and everything's going nuts, right? And, uh, and then they'll move to an earlier part of the movie. So like, for example, I'm thinking of, for example, when Tom Cruise in one of the Mission Impossible movies, and it starts, Tom Cruise is in a chair and he's strapped and he can't get free, and his wife is being held hostage at gunpoint, and there's this imposing guy, and he's counting to 10. And he says, you got 10 seconds to tell me where the rabbit's foot is. So you, you're totally, you have no background, you have no context, you don't know what the rabbit's foot is, you have no idea who these people are or what their roles are, but it's just this chaotic, frenetic scene. 10 seconds to tell me where's the rabbit foot. And at the end of the 10 seconds, you hear, the, the screen goes black and you hear a gun go off and then it's bum, 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 bum. The, the music scene begins, right? And then the next thing you see are words on the screen and it says, three days earlier. And you just see them kind of at this cocktail party and they're dressed up and they're, you know, talking with people in the house. And you, you're, you're pulled into the story, right? Because you wonder, how do we get from this Monday to that Thursday? How do things ratchet up that fast from here to there? And in a way, Jonah chapter 3 feels a little bit like that. Because three days ago, before what just happened, three days ago, Jonah was on a ship, he's sleeping below decks, and the ship is headed for Spain. And three days ago, these 120,000 massive city of Ninevites were doing what Ninevites did, being idolatrous, being violent, being all the things that got them on the front page news of the world, right? They were, they were awful, 
just terrible, violent people. I could read accounts that live to this day from 8th century B.C., but it's rated R material of how incredibly violent this culture was. So three days ago, the Ninevites were doing that, and then you fast forward to this Thursday, and Jonah is not in Spain, kicking up his feet right under a palm tree somewhere. He is in Nineveh, and he is preaching to the Ninevites, and 120,000 of them uh, repent and believe, and the king gets off his throne, and he orders that everybody's going to fast, and we're all going to seek God, including the animals, and you're just wondering, how did we get from that Monday to that Thursday? And the answer comes in the book of Jonah in chapter 2, verse 9. The turning point on which everything hinges is this statement in Jonah 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's the sovereign grace of God that explains everything that happens as God is rescuing both prodigal prophets and impenitent pagans and he's bringing them to himself in this massive dramatic story that is so crazy the amount of twists and turns that happens in this one chapter that we're still talking about this story 2,800 years after it happened. And, and I would submit to you this morning that this story gives us two pictures of the character of God and the sovereignty of God. And the first one is this. We see the God of the buyback. The God of the buyback. You see those first words in verse one? The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach. You read those words, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and preach, you're supposed to have deja vu. Because if you were here for our study or you've read Jonah chapter 1, that's exactly what God told Jonah before everything went sideways. The, the very first time, when the word came to Jonah, the first time, he says, get up, it's time to go preach to the Ninevites. And what, what happened? Right, God said, go east, and Jonah went west. He, he went so far, he went to the end of the world west. He went to Gibraltar, Spain. He was supposed to go to Mosul, Iraq, and he goes to Gibraltar, Spain, or books a ticket to head in that direction. We know how the story unfolds from, from Jonah chapter one. Jonah acted the fool and almost got himself killed. That's what takes place. He ends up getting thrown over, overboard, and he's drowning in the water, and then God sends this whale to rescue him from drowning, and then we saw the prayer Pastor Daniel led us through in Jonah chapter two last week, and we've seen already in this short series of studying through this book, this truth that sin has devastating consequences. In, in the next life, for sure, if we don't put our trust in Jesus, but often in this life as well, often sin brings a harvest of pain into our lives even now. And that's a reality that we see in the book of Jonah as well. And some of us have stories of reaping that harvest of pain in our own lives because we pushed God out of the frame for a season of time in our lives and on comes all of this, the consequences of our sin against a holy God. The pain that we taste on the other side of rebellion against God. Andrew Peterson is a fine songwriter and lyricist and he tells in one of his songs, he, 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 uh, he writes about the story of his salvation and how he came to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. But he talks about this season where he pushed God out of the frame. Here's what he says. Through the years I barely fell, that is, fell into sin. I mostly dove right in. I drank so deep from the shallow well only to thirst again. I wonder how many Christians in this room have tasted 
from the shallow well only to thirst again. And you keep hitting that well and you go back and back and back and you think next time it's going to satisfy, right? And, and maybe there were even times or seasons in your life you could tell the story as a Christian where you push God out of the frame of your own life and it was a blast until it wasn't. Right? Sin can be pleasurable for a season. What amazing words we, can, we see here in the very first words, words of Jonah chapter three that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, right? That, that's, that's the grace of God singing through this text. What's happening here? This is in your notes if you're following along. God invites Jonah to start again. It's a reset button for Jonah in Jonah chapter three, and he needs that. There's something beautiful about a restart, right? I, I remember, um, I remember a particular argument that I got into with my son, one of my sons, and um, I wanted control of a situation, and turns out he wanted control as well. And I was ticked off, and I was not looking to find words that would give grace to the hearer. Um, I was not interested in that. I wanted to win the argument. I was slow to listen, and I was quick to speak. And everybody, there was a kind of attention in the whole house when we went to bed that night and woke up the next morning. I had a meeting early in the morning. I had a hard time praying that morning, to be honest. And I uh, went off to an early morning meeting and then he went off to school and I was just heavy of soul that morning. And I thought, I cannot wait until the end of the day. I, I, I need to at least reach out. And if we need to talk later on, we'll do that, but I need to reach out right now. And I sent him a text and I went and found it. It's still in my phone, deep in the archives. And here's, here's what it said. I hate arguing. I hate saying things that make you feel singled out. I love you, son. I'm sorry. Can we start over today? And then about 10 minutes later, I do too, dad. I'm sorry as well. Yes, we certainly can, exclamation point. I love you too. The fresh starts can be a beautiful thing. You want one? Jonah 3 holds out the prospect of a fresh start, a clean page that God says, let's turn this clean page, let's do this together. God comes to Jonah and he says, let's try that again. Like, can we roll that back before you rebelled against me and ran and I started chasing you? Can we just roll back the tape and record over everything that went wrong these past few days? Let's just, Jonah, let's just act like that never happened. Can we do that? Can we just start again and act like that never happened? You know, I'm inclined to think that one of the best days in the life of the Old Testament king, David, was the day that he wrote the words of Psalm 103. Because Psalm 103 reflects the fact that David realized the mess that he had made of his life collides into the grace of God. And he wrote down these immortal words that will be precious to many Christians in the room if you're familiar with the Bible. And it's these words that he penned back there thousands of years ago. He said, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. David heard the Lord say, we can turn a clean page, you and me and I'll separate you from all the things you've done, all your transgressions, as far as the east is from the west. Friend, this morning, I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey, but here's the reality. Nothing can remove the condemning memory of our past but the blood 
of Christ. That's why the saints have been singing about this cleansing power. Would you be free from your passion and pride? Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. There's wonderful power in the blood. You can have a brand new start today. O. Palmer Robertson, a wonderful scholar from Jackson, Mississippi, he turned 83 just a couple of months ago. And uh, here's an excerpt from his commentary on this verse from Jonah chapter three, verse one. He writes to believers in Christ these words. God forgets and never holds the thing against you. Think of how wonderful are the implications of that one fact for your life. God simply does not hold grudges against people who humble themselves and ask his forgiveness through Jesus Christ. That just never gets old. (laughs) That's awesome. Men, he goes on to say, men have a much greater problem forgiving and forgetting than does God. You may discover that you have a very difficult time forgetting your mistakes of the past, but God does not have that kind of trouble. What good news. There should be almost an instinct in the Christian here this morning that says, okay, Matt, could you just get out of the way and could we just sing again, right? There's this desire to respond to grace like that. It begs for song, not prose. It's asking for poetry. It's asking for music. Why? Because here's the story we see in Jonah chapter three and so many of us have lived this story. We're living this story. It's in your notes this way. God leads us to repentance grants us forgiveness, and restores us to service. That's what happens. God leads Jonah to repentance, grants him forgiveness, and restores him to service. You remember what happens with Peter in the New Testament. Peter's kind of the New Testament version of Jonah in the Old Testament, right? He, he's the guy who, he's called by Jesus, he's a disciple of Jesus, walks with Jesus, ministers, and then he plays the coward, right? At the darkest hour of Jesus' own life, uh, Peter says, hey, I, I've never met the man, right? He's, Peter is he, under the withering gaze of a schoolgirl, a stone's throw away from the arrest of Jesus, and Peter says, I've, I promise you, I've never met the man. Not even 24 hours ago, Peter tells Jesus, everybody will run from you, and I'll stand with you all the way to death, right? Peter failed epically. And and Jesus comes, we looked at this earlier when we studied the book of John, earlier this year in John chapter 21. Jesus comes and he finds Peter and he says, Peter, I need to ask you a question. Do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you, you know I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. And then he asks him again, Jesus says, do you love me? Then he asks him again. They go through this regimen three times. And when he asks him the third time, Peter says, I realize what you're doing. You're You have one question and one affirmation tied to each of my three denials. It's gotta be this deeply humbling moment because Jesus asked three times, one to match each of Peter's denials, but it's also gotta be a surprising gift of grace because Peter rolls back and thinks, wait, every time he's asked me and I've said I love you, he's told me, feed my lambs. In other words, I I get to keep the jersey. Right, he's, he's not just saying, hey, out of my sight, I don't need cowards like you on the team, right? He, he's still calling me onto the field of service, right? And it, what, it, what happens is Peter is humbled in that moment. Peter walks with a limp for the rest of his life after this humbling moment from John 21, but it transforms him, and the same thing happens with Jonah. Jonah is a failed prophet, and he gets transformed in the belly of the whale for three days. God gives him a brand new start and turns a page, and Jonah ends up in Nineveh, and this time he's gonna preach. 
And Jonah's message is summarized in verse 4. You see it. It's basically featuring God's judgment against the sin of Nineveh. So that's Jonah's message summarized. It's not the whole message, but it's a summary of the message. But Jonah's life seems to suggest that the God who opposes the pride of Assyria also gives grace to those who are humbled. That, because that's Jonah's own story. Jonah had lived in active defiance of the king. And yet here he is in Nineveh. And he doesn't look impressive. He's got whale bile in his beard. He doesn't look awesome in this particular moment. But God has restored this man. His life screams the possibility of redemption. Think about that for our own lives. The presence of Christians in the city should stand as a message of hope to the city. We'll talk about that more next week, but just think about that. If unbelieving Birmingham heard you talk, if unbelieving Birmingham watched your life, if unbelieving Birmingham read your posts on social media, underneath it all would there be this kind of narrative that says to them, from your life, you're sort of saying, I don't know why, but God has been unbelievably good to me. Is that the sort of intangible message that comes wafting off of your life to the world? This leads us to one more picture of, of God drawn for us in Jonah 3. He's the God of the buyback, and he's number two. He's the Lord of the nations. He's the Lord of the nations. God says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. It's a massive city. 120,000 might not sound like a huge city to us. In the ancient world, that was an impossibly large city. Three days journey in this city. And there's, there's Jonah. And God told him, I want you to go there and I'm going to tell you what to preach. And that's exactly what you're going to preach. You tell them what I tell you. And that's the pattern of all apostolic work. That's the pattern of evangelism. That's the pattern of ministry and mission for us all the way to this day. We deliver the message that God gave us. God gives us a gospel and he says, say this. <laughs> and we go out and we don't just make it up on our own. We deliver the message that he has given. Here's the point. Faithful servants don't tamper with the message. The Apostle Paul, he called it God's gospel. Apostle Paul's self-conscious sense was that I, I'm not out there as a talk show host. I'm a mail carrier. What's a mail carrier's job? You receive mail. You receive package. You deliver package. You don't mess with it. You don't tamper with it. You deliver it the exact, in the exact condition in which you received it. That's how you deliver it. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. We delivered to you as of first importance what we also received that Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul delivered the message. Friends, we don't, we don't hide the parts of the gospel message that are not going to be palatable to the audience or to the culture or to the person that's standing in front of us. We, we, if we try to improve the gospel, we lose the gospel. If we try to improve the gospel, we rob the gospel of its power. God said, I charged that thing with divine power to explode unbelief. 
Leave it alone. (laughs) It's powerful enough. It doesn't need you to tweak it or rewire it. It's already wired to save. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter one, I'm not ashamed of this message because this message is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What does the real gospel do? The real gospel unsettles the soul and then saves, right? The real gospel creates a sense of trembling in the soul of the sinner before a holy God, and then it whispers grace in the cross of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit decides what happens next. That's what gospel proclamation is all about. Faithful servants don't tamper with the message of the gospel. What is the message of the gospel? The message of the gospel is that we have sinned against the God who made us. And the God who made us is perfect in all of his ways and he is righteous and he is just and he hates sin and no sin will go unpunished. And so we deserve judgment. But the gospel message goes on to announce that God in his mercy has found a way to uphold his righteousness and justify those who believe in Jesus Christ. How did he do it? He sent his only son, Jesus, to bear our punishment in our place on the cross. He absorbed the heat of God's fury against our sin in himself on the cross as our substitute. In my place, as the hymn writer said, in my place condemned he stood substitutionary atonement. He bore our punishment. By his stripes we are healed. So that everyone who will turn from sin and trust in Jesus Christ is forgiven forever. Past sins, present sins, future sins, all taken by Jesus and we walk with his righteousness. He walks with our sin to the cross, we walk with his righteousness from the cross. (laughs) That's good news. That is amazing grace. And that same Jesus who showed up 2,000 years ago to live and die and rise is gonna come again in glory. And everyone who blew him off And everyone who spurned the mercy of God offered in the death of his son will be cast into flames forever. God's judgment falls either on Jesus or on me. So that is, that day is coming, the day of reckoning. But but here's the glorious reality. Somehow, you and me and all who have trusted in Christ will join countless millions singing around the throne of the Lamb forever, experiencing pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. And we will not be there because we figured something out. We will not be there because we worked the deal or we performed our way into heaven. We will only be there because with the absolute weakest, almost embarrassingly feeble faith, we clung to the only rock that won't move. And that would be my plead for you, that this morning, you, friend, would cling to the only rock that won't move. Turn to Jesus. Run, fall into his capable, saving arms his all-sufficient salvation. Jonah preaches the word, and he comes away the most surprised person in the city. Why? Because they actually believed it. 120,000 
confirmed, entrenched pagans. And it says, verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed God. Why doesn't it say they believed Jonah? He was the one talking. It says they believed God because Jonah doesn't have the power to save or convert the heart of one Ninevite, much less the whole city of Ninevites from the greatest to the least. And that is exactly what happened. From the greatest to the least, the pagan king himself comes off his throne. He takes off, he, he divests himself of his royal garments. He wraps himself in burlap, in sackcloth, in the garments of the poor. Why, why, why did he do that? Because if you wanted to get right with God in the ancient world, you try to figure out a way for your outsides to feel like your insides. And in that moment, you're the king of Assyria. You, you take off your fancy clothes because you don't feel rich right now. You feel very poor. You feel itchy. You feel uncomfortable in the presence of a holy God. You don't feel like a sovereign. You're at the mercy of one. That's why he wraps himself in burlap in front of all the people. And then you sit down in the ashes. Why do you do that? Because your life is over. You are toast. You are done. You have no fixer who can make this right. You, right you're powerless to get your life back on the rails. That's why the king sits in the ashes. I can't do a thing about this. The most powerful man in 8th century BC, and I can't do a thing about the prospect of a holy God and his wrath trucking toward my city. And the king gets low, and he says, not just me, everybody get low. Everybody draped in burlap, including the animals. Nobody's eating, nobody's drinking. We're all together calling, begging for mercy from the God of Jonah. And verse nine says, who knows, the king says, God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Where did he get that notion? I think he got it from Jonah. I think Jonah's message featured the judgment of God, but Jonah's own life argued about the possibility of redemption. Jesus, 800 years later, comes on the scene and he talks to the Pharisees about the sign of Jonah. And he said, there's going to be a sign that I'm going to show you in my own life as the Messiah, and it's going to mimic the sign of Jonah. The sign was given to Nineveh that Jonah was, was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, and in the same way, the Son of Man will go into the heart of the earth. Here's the text, Matthew chapter 12, verse 40 and 41. For as Jonah, Jesus says, was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. The point Jesus was making in front of his audience is his audience, one verse ago, in another gospel account, his audience said, hey, show us a trick. Like, do a dance. Do, do the thing. Show us your power, and we'll believe. And, and Jesus said, you, all you want is signs. All you want is spiritual fireworks. I'm going to give you a sign. It's going to be the sign of Jonah. What, what's, what's that mean? It means I'm going to display power in weakness. 
That's what happened with Jonah. Jonah comes to Nineveh after three days in an underwater tomb, and he's never looked less impressive. Jonah has never been weaker than he does standing before the city of Nineveh. And yet, in his obedience to God, with his broken voice, he delivers this message, and out of his experience of death comes life to Nineveh. Jesus says, that's how it's going to go down. I'm not going to show you more power tricks. I'm going to go into the ground. I'm not going to look impressive, and that's where I'm going to save you. But Paul said later on, he says, well, look, we're preaching this message, and nobody wants to believe it, because the Greeks, they just want high-minded philosophy, and the Jews, they want power tricks and signs and wonders and miracles. And he says, but we preach what? Christ crucified. We preach life comes out of death, and nobody wants to believe it. It just seems like foolishness, but it was God's power to save the greatest revival recorded in the Bible was 120,000 Assyrians <laughs> repenting and running to God and amending their evil ways. And look at verse 10. The text says, God saw their actions, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened. Does that mean that God changes his mind? Does that, does that give us the impression that God was surprised yeah, I, honestly, you know, I'm, I'm God, and I didn't really see this happening. I didn't see it unfolding this particular way, so now I've got to call an audible. I mean, I was going to come in 40 days and nuke the place, but now I've got to call an audible because the unforeseen actually took place. No, no, God is not changing his mind and responding and calling an audible that he didn't see in advance. How do you know? You keep reading Jonah, and you get to Jonah chapter 4, when Jonah is bitter about the fact that all these people have come to repentance, and Jonah looks at God, and he says, you did this. Wait. You wanted this to happen all along, didn't you? That's why you sent me in the first place. You sent me to announce judgment, and you intended from the word go to grant them repentance. You sneaky, merciful God, you went and did that thing that you alone can do. You wanted to save these dirty rebels. You did this. According to Jesus, the sign of Jonah contains a kind of principle that applies to all ministry in this world and to the mission of the gospel that we have. The Apostle Paul, I think, embodies it in this language he uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then, death is at work in us, but life in you. That's the Jonah principle. Some of you, um, you're really tired. Your ministry assignment has you threadbare. There are people in our church, I wish I could tell you about conversations I've had just these past couple of weeks with members of our church who are fraying at the seams, who go to bed at night and they are pleading with God. That whole thing about new mercies in the morning, I'm literally banking on it for my survival tomorrow morning. I need those mercies to arrive. The moment my feet hit the floor, I'm gonna need fresh supply. An old hymn 
It's mostly been lost to history, and it put it this way. There is no gain but by a loss. You cannot save but by a cross. Wherever you ripe fields behold, waving to God their sheaves of gold, be sure some corn of wheat has died, some soul has there been crucified, someone has wrestled, wept, and prayed, and fought hell's legions undismayed. Sinclair Ferguson said, it was out of Jonah's inner death that life was born in Nineveh. That's the Jonah principle. Let me ask you this question. What death are you prepared to die so that others may live? What, what sacrifice, what potential sacrifice is so great that you and I cannot trust the sustaining grace of God as we move forward in ministry and in mission to every Christian who's had a near scrape with total ruin, Jonah 3 tells your story. The word of the Lord came a second time. That probably explains why you're so good, particularly walking with people who struggle. That same principle. To every Christian who wants to live on mission and to be found faithful, Jonah 3 is kind of an early version of the Great Commission reminding us there are cities in the world today where you could stand and you could watch 120,000 people passing in front of you right there. None of them know their right hand from their left. None of them know the name of the Savior or why he came or that there's hope in his cross. Maybe the Lord is going to prompt hearts as we look at this text and prompt hearts for conversations to begin that will maybe lead you to those places in the world. It's a story of dramatic reversal. What happens in Jonah chapter 3? How do we get from that Monday to this Thursday? Here's what happens. Jonah 3 tells a story of what happens when prodigal prophets and impenitent pagans Meet the God of the buyback and the Lord of the nations.